Hello. Hey. Hey, hey, are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? I'm ready. Okay. On three, Dad. One, two, three. Dadman. Dadman. <laughs> we'll work on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, welcome. You're listening to Dadman. This is a podcast where me, Sally Ann Price, and my dad, Keith, who you just heard, rewatch the AMC drama Mad Men. I don't know if you know this about us, but we've always been pretty into this show in my family, and maybe you are too. Did you ever throw on a retro chic outfit and pour yourself a fancy drink to tune into the show? Or did you head to a themed cocktail affair based on the show? Well, you're about to, so pour yourself something festive and buckle in. Uh, Before we start to measure out bite-sized portions of one of TV's most binge-worthy dramas, let's get to know each other a little bit. Uh, My dad and I are both writers and shameless TV nerds and also movie nerds. Um, I live and work in Chicago, and he is in our native metro Detroit. When the show first premiered in the summer of 2007, I was entering my senior year of high school and dividing my time between my parents' separate homes. Uh, But movies are big in all branches of our family, and so is appointment TV. So we often ended up watching the show together over the years or at least comparing notes about it. Um, So I'm going to read the uh, premise as described by AMC's website and then uh, introduce my co-host. The series revolves around the conflicted world of Don Draper, played by John Hamm, the biggest ad man and ladies man in the business, and his colleagues at the Sterling Cooper Draper Price Advertising Agency. As Don makes the plays in the boardroom and the bedroom, he struggles to stay a step ahead of the rapidly changing times and the young executives nipping at his heels. The series also depicts authentically the roles of men and women in this era while exploring the true human nature that's beneath the guise of 1960s traditional family values. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to you, Pops. Why don't you introduce yourself to the nice people? You know, before I jump into an introduction, I, I, le- I read that when you sent me that, and I just let it soak over me as I heard your words. Sterling Cooper, Draper Price, and that had to have been from some of the show's descriptive or press materials from later on because it was just Sterling Cooper at the beginning, and that's what we're introduced to. And I, I think that's a really important point that the name of the agency evolved, the advertising business continues to evolve since I got off that merry-go-round. But it never stopped moving the whole time I was involved with it, was a student trying to get into it, or because I was always a student of the industry and what happened the entire time I was there. But that probably jumps ahead of my story, which is um, my college advertising professor, Bob Ellis, was the guy who put the growling cougar up on the sign for Lincoln Mercury. This was in the late 60s. In 1973, he left Kenyon and Eckhart, the agency he had been with for 10 years or so, and uh, took up teaching at Northwood University, which was then Northwood Institute, and he was the advertising professor. And his whole program was play the game with me in the classroom, and if you want to go to Detroit and get a job in an automotive ad ad agency like the one I came from, I can hook you up. And that sounded like a pretty good deal to me. Uh, I, 
I always knew I wanted to be in the advertising business. Uh, when I was 15 years old, if you would have asked me what I wanted to do, I would have said I want to be a writer for a car magazine. Uh, when I was 20, I would have been very specific because Bob Ellis had taught me so much already in the classroom uh, that I wanted to be an uh, ad space salesperson for a car magazine calling on Detroit advertising agencies uh, and, uh, and the auto companies themselves. And by the time I was 25, I'd been doing that for a couple of years. And I, I think the important point there is that the advertising business at the time that I experienced it and because the Mad Men guys were still very much around and a presence, although I like to say they were on the uh, they were on the final fairway at that point. The end was in sight for them. But once again, because the business and the entire community around it, and it didn't matter if that was creative, account services, media, where I spent most of my career. Um, it was always such a dynamic, fast-paced environment. So anyway, uh, the advertising business, as you know, Sally, was mighty good to me <laughs> and to us. I started at Kenyon and Eckhart in 1979 for $9,000 a year as a media estimator. I quickly became a media buyer and then a media planner. Then I jumped to the other side and became a magazine sales rep for Auto Week magazine in my first tour with the Cranes, which lasted almost 10 years. And I saw that magazine evolve from a newsprint to a glossy magazine and got to ride that wave. But I also represented Field and Stream magazine, Entertainment Weekly magazine. I was the manager and sales manager for TV Guide. Uh, I was the outside magazine for a while, which, of course, represented the outsider part of my personality. But um, sales and the media business allowed me to do so much. Uh, it was at that time that I began teaching on the creative side, teaching marketing basics to wannabe art directors at Detroit's College for Creative Studies. So... The advertising business allowed me to stick my finger in several pots, if that, if that makes sense, uh, and to do so many things. When everything changed in my media career and I became a PR guy for Volkswagen of America, uh, I was just in a different place in the marketing and communications mix, but still very much involved and ended up being a writer for Volkswagen of America, Ford, and all its divisions and every initiative. Uh, and then finally a Chrysler ad agency. Uh, I was a copywriter, I was a creative director, and then finally I got to be a photographer. And you'll remember I was never the dad taking the family pictures. I was the guy squinting into a sunset trying to take the perfect sunset picture at Clear Lake. Uh, but that I got to end my career uh, as a photographer for a limited production high-end sports car, the Dodge Viper. I mean, I, the advertising business blessed me. And as it always evolved, I tried to roll with it. And sometimes that was rolling with the punches. 
picking up when you are not uh, picking back up after you've been knocked down, but also continually redefining yourself. And I think continual redefinition in the context of the 1960s is what Mad Men is all about. That was a very Linus, uh, the true meaning of Christmas uh, ending point there, but I love that. And I think that uh, paints a really, uh, a really accurate portrait of like, so in the summer of 2007, when we hear that there's this TV show about advertising in the 1960s, that that hit on so many like interest areas in our family that there was just no question that we were absolutely going to sit down and watch it together and talk about it. Oh, I'm so I'm so so glad you brought that up in the context of the time, Sally. Because at the time, if you think about it, Don Draper is trying to save the revenue that Sterling Cooper generates from Lucky Strike and a tobacco account. In 2007, I was the PR guy for Volkswagen Alternative Fuels, and that meant diesel, and that was a unhealthy type of smoking in a whole other area. I was always very proud that you got out of Volkswagen um, early enough that you were never subpoenaed for any reason. <laughs> uh, but uh, that does bring us uh, back to kind of the summer of 2007, you know, when, when the show arrived in our lives. We were talking a little bit before about AMC. Do you want to just talk about your relationship with AMC and cable drama at the time that the show came around? Oh, absolutely. Um, it didn't matter whether your mother and I were married, not married. Uh, not married, getting along wonderfully, or not married, not getting along very well at all. It never changed each of our individual and collective relationships to old movies. And that was the environment that you grew up in, and your brother's certainly been affected by it. Um, you know, in our own tiny little space, we can be unbeatable at Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's an excellent point. And of course, uh, you know, before Mad Men being the first uh, cable kind of serial television offering on AMC at the time, you know, that was a big gamble. But um, uh, of course, this has been written about in a lot of places. The uh, the creator of Mad Men, Matt Weiner, had worked on The Sopranos with HBO, which so he had really come from the HBO school of kind of these dark, glossy character driven dramas. Um, and the story of the pilot was that, you know, he'd, he'd had that, he'd had that screenplay in his back pocket for years and it had been kicking around Hollywood, you know, every pilot season for years. Um, but when it finally was made and it was finally hitting the air on AMC, uh, that was a movies channel. That was a movies channel. And, you know, that's why we saw all of the trailers and why we were totally tuned in and ready to watch night one. I think it kind of took a, a couple more years for the show. Like by the time I went to college, it really felt like the show had really penetrated and a lot of people were watching it and, you know, people were having watch parties or throwing theme parties and things like that. Um, but at least when I was in high school, again, I was a high school student, so maybe it just wasn't popular with other high school kids, but um, uh, it kind of felt like we were early adopters in that way because we were lured by so much of the subject matter and the uh, availability of AMC in our house. Well, there, there's some subtext there to, for me, it was reliving what I had heard about in the ad business. Um, Brian Weston and I, and I think Brian just retired from the advertising and uh, publishing um, just this past year, but Brian started out at Kenyon and Eckhart a couple of years ahead of me, and 
when my head popped up in the media department, having not had to make the obligatory stop in the mailroom because I was hired in during a, a, a huge hiring drive, Kenya Neckhart had just lost uh, Lincoln Mercury and Ford Corporate, uh, and but had in turn taken on all of Chrysler Corporation. And that was right when Lee Iacocca was fired from Ford and sent to Chrysler. He took the Kenyon and Eckhart agency with him. And that's the agency that my college professor had been employed at. And he called the media director and he got me a job in the media de uh, department. All I basically had to do was show up, not drool on myself, and have a degree and a recommendation from somewhere because there were kids all around me from Michigan State. A whole bunch of us started at the same time. It was a real hiring drive, and they called the media department at Kenya and Eckhart the wrecking crew. We were the first to arrive at any party, the last to leave. Um, median age in the department was about 26, so we partied, and we partied really hard. It was a lot of fun. And it was something funny when I think about, you know, obviously so many of those people are people who I knew or who I saw around over the course of my life. And something I always thought was so interesting was you all started in the same place, but everyone kind of ended somewhere different, but in a lot of ways somewhere somewhere interesting. Uh, you know, that was a really vibrant group of, of uh, professionals who I think. Well, uh, the other part that is so important, Sally, and as you well know, we all stayed friends. <laughs> Because that sometimes lasts longer than the than the jobs or the, even the magazines. Or oh, the absolutely. But the, the, the reason I brought up and singled out Brian was that Brian and I, as young guys, as a hobby, and as our own personal research, would debrief older guys. And generally, this is when we are media buyers and planners and older space sales reps are coming in to call on us and take us to lunch and buy us drinks, um, we would debrief them on stories from the past. And you wow. knowing Brian and I, we collected all this stuff and we remembered all this stuff because somebody's got to. And I guess what it's done for me later in life is as these guys begin to pass, I might have something witty to add cleaned up for primetime use in a eulogy somewhere. Oh, that's, 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 that's dark, but that's very funny. And that's sometimes the vibe of Mad Men. So I think that's perfect for, for this conversation. Um, I do want to deviate for a moment from um, kind of the professional timeline of the 80s and 90s when you were working in advertising. But, um, and just to ground uh, the people who might be listening who don't already know you, um, you are, of course, a baby boomer. Uh, so it, would it be fair to say in the year 1960 when the show started, when the, in the world of the show, when we, when we enter the show, it's 1960. Um, so you're kind of in the age of the main character's kids. Like you were kind of, you were alive at that time um, and you do have memories of that time. So you do bring kind of a, an eye for some of the authenticity that gets talked about so much. Um, and uh, that's, I, I, I always appreciated that about watching the show with you. Oh, I, I, that's a thank you. Um, I I like there is some relatability from the age standpoint, but the second part of it is Sally that I was born during a time of growing counterculture awareness. Um, 
1957 when I was born uh, think of movies like The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit about the prototypical PR guy. Think about the hucksters, uh, uh, the behind the scenes at an advertising agency. Think about books like The Hidden Persuaders, subliminal messaging and things like that, all of which were new and feared as broadcast was taking over. It was also such a dynamic time for ad agencies. Think about um, the late 50s were a time uh, probably led by the fashion magazines when photography began to take the place of art. Mm -hmm. So when you put a stake in the ground for 1960 when Mad Men begins, um, all of that stuff is still in transition. And we all know that um, systemic change in a hidebound industry can sometimes be slow, uncomfortable, uh, disruptive. All of those things were happening in the ad agency business. Um, a, another sort of stake in the ground for what was happening in 1960, in 1959, Doyle Day and Bernbach got its first car account the Volkswagen business, and they changed advertising by develop, developing a style and a voice that spoke to my parents' generation, and they didn't know they wanted a Volkswagen per se, but they know they didn't want to make payments on a crappy American car that was going to wear out in two or three years or rust out. Um, they wanted something different, and even though my dad was employed in the auto industry at Ford, he wanted weird old foreign uh, weird foreign cars. That was a point of pride. He for was him. kind of a beatnik, as we've as I've come to understand him. He was saying, you know, that, uh, "Oh, your absolutely." Parents, your parents were not quite the Don and Betty uh, suburban characters that we're going to come to meet as we really get into the show. But uh, you know, there is this picture of uh, the idyllic suburban life, and I think it's useful to point out that um, while your parents did raise you in suburbs uh, um, that they they did have a, a kind of a more sideways kind of approach to the world I think than um, some of the characters oh, yeah. we see on the show who are uh, more diametrically <laughs> my, opposed. <laughs> my my parents were like beatniks in witness protection. <laughs> um, which also I think this is a useful mo moment to point out that um, so not only is my father a person who's a writer who's worked in media. Um, I've worked as a journalist mostly and a little bit in PR here and there, um, but I've, I've, you know, my trade is very much being a writer and editor, um, and that both of my father's parents were both, uh, were both writers in their own different ways, and there's a lot of stories there, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to, um, to tell them, and, and they'll come out as we get into watching the show a little more, but uh, just remember that you're talking, as you listen to the show, that you're dealing with a lot of writers. So. In, in our family, Sally, if you don't write, you better weld. <laughs> That's, of course, a reference to uh, to my older brother, Hal, who I hope will make an appearance on this show at some point. Um, and, you know, but, you know, I always thought, you know, he, he forges raw materials uh, or forges uh, meaning and function out of raw materials. Uh, and so do I. But my raw materials don't require a soldering iron. So he's, he's impressive that way. Um, but I think also, too, the listeners are hearing, um, I'm here in Chicago, you're there in Detroit. So obviously, um, the, the automotive industry, the uh, automotive media, 
Um, there's a lot of inside baseball there, and uh, uh, and uh, I'm hoping a lot of people in Detroit might be might be interested in that. But uh, if it doesn't seem relevant to you now, if you're a newcomer to the show, um, just know that automotive advertising is going to come to play um, a very big role in the show as we kind of work through the seasons and uh, follow the advertising industry through the 60s. So um, let me see. What else do we got on this? Uh, Dad, knowing what we know now about how successful the show has been and how much it hit and just was such a huge cultural phenomenon, um, what are you hoping to get out of revisiting it now as we're all kind of quarantined and, and watching a lot of TV to get through the days? Why do you think Mad Men is such a valuable show to revisit? I think Mad Men is a terrific example. And it's that peer through the looking glass at a time that's often forgotten about. While Mad Men spans the 60s, the tight focus on the early 60s, I can't remember which cultural observer, that the, the 50s ended in 1962 with American Graffiti, <laughs> but that the, the 50s lasted longer than their decade. And because so much emphasis in any discussion of the 60s is overshadowed by anything that happened from the time Dylan went electric or Twiggy wore a miniskirt, um, the late 60s so overshadows that time. And I think that's one of the things that really sucks you in by watching the first season of Mad Men because all of it works to set the scene, but at the same time, it's an up-close look at the part of the 60s that we don't dwell on now. It's also, I always appreciate it about this show, but I, I know a lot of people have different opinions about it. Um, it starts very clearly in this moment in 1960, um, and one of the useful kind of anchoring things in the timeline there is um, uh, we see someone going to a doctor to get access to the contraceptive pill in the pilot episode, and we could talk more about that when we get to the pilot. But um, I think a lot of people describe the uh, when the contraceptive pill became available in 1960. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, commentators uh, chalk that up to the beginning of the Gen X generation of Generation X, because that's uh, when women suddenly, after the war and the baby boom. Uh, that was when women had you know, much more access to decide when they might want to have children. And, of course, a lot of people ended up having a lot less children. Um, but that's why I always thought, too, that the, um, the offspring of the main character in the show uh, would be like kind of late wave boomers or early wave Gen Xers, uh, not unlike, you know, my own parents or other, you know, people uh, we, we both have known and worked with. Um, so that's why it starts so much in 1960. But then the show. You know, it's not like MASH where the Korean War goes on forever. It's uh, the timeline of the show keeps moving through the 60s. So every season there's, you know, there's a very different aesthetic or a different, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't stay in that moment of 1960 with this, you know, really kind of sexy 1950s Marilyn Monroe, you know, that um, you see that and you, get, you, you go swimming in it in such a luxurious way in the early episodes and in the whole first season. Uh, but history keeps moving, time keeps forging on, and I've always thought that's one of the show's great, great assets. Oh, absolutely, and keeping it um, using current events 
and events of consequence throughout the 60s add an authenticity. I guess the polar extreme of that, of that would be Bart Simpson, who never grows up. Exactly. That's, that's the excellent, that is the excellent reference. Even though I'm not a Simpsons person, I get that reference. Um, I think we have a, a, one more kind of question on my list here uh, before we start to wind down. And uh, then, of course, we're going to get to the, the pilot episode. But we talked about this a little bit uh, earlier, you and I. But, Father, if folks are going to get in a car with us for a long road trip through the past <laughs> via the show Mad Men uh, with the two of us, um, what do we think people should, should know about us before they get in that car? I think I touched on it earlier, and it's we're time travelers, Sally. Between your cultural awareness and my cultural awareness, we can pretty well cover the grounds for anybody's reference set as it relates to watching Mad Men from the point of view of now and what it meant and what it meant about tobacco use, alcohol use what it meant about sexual freedom and liberation, what it meant about the cars people drove, what it meant about societal norms, whether it's okay to litter. I mean, there were so many things that between my perspective and your perspective, we can help somebody new to this show find the meanings in all things great and small. Well put, Pops. I think this is also a useful uh, moment to segue into some, um, just kind of some things, uh, some things folks should know. Um, one of them is, you know, you and I bring a lot to the table when we're talking about Mad Men. Um, as we move forward, we might bring in some different voices to bring in some perspectives that maybe you and I don't have, because, you know, we're a father and daughter from the same, <laughs> the same place, uh, and, you know, we have a lot of the same reference points. But for, for right now, as we get it started, we're just a uh, we're just rolling tape on you and me. Um, another thing people should know before they listen, this is a grown-up podcast about a grown-up TV show, so do be careful where you listen. might not be great if you have kids in the car. Uh, and we're also going to try to avoid big spoilers that might compromise the viewing experience if you're a newcomer to the show. Uh, but also, this show's been off the air for a long time, so deal with it. You're listening to a rewatch podcast. Uh, don't, don't come crying to us if we spoiled something for you. And uh, lastly, this is by no means an exhaustive guide to the show Mad Men. A lot's been written about this show over the years. And if you're listening to this, we trust you're a smart person. Uh, so you can go out there and find it if, if you're interested. But uh, for now, I'm very, very glad that you've decided to join us for the origin story of the Mad Men podcast. We wish you luck on your Mad Men journey, whatever that means for you right now. And next up, we're diving into one of the most successful television pilots ever produced. So stay tuned. You can also hang out with us on Instagram at dad underscore men underscore pod or get in touch with one of us directly. I'm at Sally Annihilate. If you start looking for Sally Ann, you'll find it. And uh, KP is at Boomer Centric. Dad, you got anything you want to throw down before we close out? You know, it's not a sell job on us, Sally, but it's a sell job on committing to seven seasons of Mad Men. Mad which Men, streaming, which is streaming on Netflix right now, I should add. It is all streaming on Netflix. 
Sorry, go right it's ahead. Streaming on Netflix, and I will tell you that the last time I just popped my head into season one volume or season one episode one, it said this show available until June tenth. So, well, we might think of this content as evergreen. I don't know what's up Netflix or my service or anything else, but when I saw that it is only available through June tenth, I think that gives us all a little urgency. Oh crap. <laughs> but you know what else is funny about that though and this is I think this just it speaks to the changing media landscape since the show first premiered and in the years since it's been off the air um, I know I at least have several seasons of it in my permanent iTunes library um, because I didn't have cable when I was in college or for you know many years thereafter so I would often get the season pass through iTunes so that I could download the new episode uh, like the day after it aired uh, and that's, you know, so I know I have a bunch of that. I think between members of our family, we probably have some of the seasons on DVD. But, who you know, you have a DVD player. I don't have a DVD player. <laughs> I'm not crying. Um, you're crying. No. So we're going to we're going to we're going to start out on Netflix here, guys. And if uh, Netflix decides to do us dirty on this one, we will find other ways, other ways to watch. But uh, visit your yeah. local public library, damn it. And that's and that is always a good thing to do for a lot of reasons. That's not a paid endorsement from my employer, but it could have been. Uh, so I think I think that's all for now. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank and, you. And and uh, talk soon, pops. Bye, Sally. Bye.